invite you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 35 through 46. Verse 35 through 46. Jesus and his disciples have just celebrated the Lord's Supper, and they are now going to make their way out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus will soon be arrested, uh, and so we're in this, uh, this holy moment where uh, Christ and his disciples are together, and then Jesus removes himself to, uh, to pray to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22 We'll begin reading at verse 35. This is God's word. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, you give us this word by the inspiration of the Spirit that we might see Christ. And I pray, Lord, that now you would give us the spiritual insight to do just that, to see our Savior, to see the wonder of the love of God the Father and the beautiful obedience of Christ Jesus and the wonder, the glory, the awfulness in the right sense of our salvation. Father, I pray that you would, um, don't let us um, ignore so great a salvation as this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message this morning is The Weeping Savior. The Weeping Savior. Sinclair Ferguson, in his sermon on this text, uh, begins uh, by reading a letter written by a German colonel, uh, written in October 1944, the man's name, Colonel Alexis von Roon. It's a fascinating story. He um, he was a Christian. He was a uh, opponent of the Nazi regime, but uh, as a German officer, uh, had to be very secret about that. He is. A, um, it's attributed that much of the success that the Allies had at Normandy uh, came uh, because of his work as a German officer, not really knowing what was going on, but having a sense and being able to mislead Hitler uh, regarding the where the location of the invasion would be. Anyhow, he was uh, 42 years old. He was falsely accused of. Uh, of um, taking part in an assassination attempt on Hitler's life. And so he was executed by hanging October 11, 1944. A few minutes before his execution, he uh, penned these words to his beloved wife. My dearest beloved, 
In a moment I shall be going home to our Lord in complete calm and in the certainty of salvation. His words are very similar to that of another man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a German uh, who was hanged April 1945 in Flossenburg prison. The prison doctor, a man who had observed hundreds and hundreds of men on their way to death, uh, gave this testimony about Bonhoeffer. He said, I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. In the almost 50 years I've worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Of course, you could say that about so many, many martyrs of the faith uh, who've died confident, calmly, serenely, um, and we praise God for them. The question, of course, that that raises is this, what happened to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Because there's no calm confidence here in the face of death. The the scene that we have here in Luke 22 in the Garden of Gethsemane is a man undone. Jesus at the end of himself in utter anguish of soul. Jesus beseeching the Father, Father, do not um, take this cup from me. If, if it be your will, take this cup from me. In Hebrews 5.17, we're told that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So the question that we're faced this morning with is, why was Jesus in such agony of soul in the face of death when these brave men and and countless martyrs of the faith, men and women and children, were able to die with such calm, such tranquility, and even anticipation. And the answer, of course, is this, that they were able to face death with peace and even anticipation and joy precisely because Jesus faced death in anguish. That God's children are able to Um, experience the overwhelming comfort of the Father's pleasure in our dying, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We get to know that because Jesus faced the overwhelming anguish of the Father's condemnation in his dying. We can die in the shadow of the presence of God because Jesus died facing the abyss of the Father's absence. He suffered this death so we would never have to. This morning we have one of the most precious, holy, weighty scenes in all the Bible. Uh, My my, uh, general sense, uh, prevailing sense as I was preparing this sermon is there's there's just too much. It's too too much. It's It's too weighty. It's too beautiful. And so we just need to ask the Lord to help us this morning. Because here in the Garden of Gethsemane, in, in a very real way, you could say that your salvation was sealed right here. This is where, where uh, that decision was made for your eternal soul. This is where Jesus uh, accepted your sin and, and took on your guilt and embraced with tears and bloody sweat all the truth of the damnable devastation that belonged to you because of your sin, Christ 
stood in your place and took it on himself. This is where he took the cup of his father's wrath and judgment for you. It's a very um, poignant scene if we remember that 2,000 years before another father and son met in the same place. As Isaac led his, as, as Abraham led his beloved Isaac uh, up this mountain. And, and there was an altar there and, and uh, Isaac asked father, where's the lamb? We've got the wood, we've got, we've got everything, but, but where's the lamb? And, and, and Abraham was able to say, uh, the Lord will provide, my son. The Lord will provide. And, and with, with calm then, apparently, Isaac lays, is laid on the altar, trusting that God will provide, and, and he did provide. But now we have another father and a son meeting at this place, and there's another altar, and, and there will be no provision. Jesus is the lamb that was slain. What I want to see this morning is in, from these texts are... Uh, two, um, just two points. First, the, the Lord's place, the Savior taking his place, being numbered with the transgressors, and then secondly, the Lord's prayer as he prays to his Father. In verses 35 and following, Jesus, uh, still loving his disciples, still teaching them and leading them, he encourages them to pray that they would not be um, taken, that they would not fall into temptation. But he gives, us the, the, gives them these interesting instructions beforehand. He, he asks them the question, when I sent you out with no money bags or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, no, we didn't lack anything. But Jesus then says, but now. That there's going to be a change. Their ministry following Jesus had been accompanied with some um, public approval and affirmation. Jesus was the miracle worker. There was a, a general sense of admiration for Jesus. The, the religious leaders didn't approve of him, but the flocks, the, 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 the crowds flocked to him. They, they uh, delighted to hear his, his wisdom and his teaching and the authority with which he spoke. And, and his miracles were unlike anything they'd seen. And so the disciples were able to go out without knapsack, without any um, preparations at all, and were gladly received, and, and they didn't need to take along any provisions. But Jesus says that's all going to change, because they're no longer going to be followers of Jesus, the miracle worker, but Jesus, the cursed, the condemned, the crucified. They will now serve the despised Galilean, and the world will show no pity no concern. Jesus, in fact, told his disciples, they will hate you. And so he tells them that things are going to change. And he even mentions, uh, if you don't have a sword, buy a sword. Now, uh, some have taken that literally with devastating results if they've, as they've taken up the sword in uh, the cause of Christ. Well, Peter tried that and was uh, firmly rebuked. The, the, the Apostle Paul says, we don't wage war with the weapons of this world. And so this is not obviously meant to be taken literally, but Jesus is explaining to them that there's going to, their ministry now is going to be battle waged with principalities and powers and every spiritual force in the heavenly realms, and they better be armed. They're going to need to be armed with the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and whatever it costs for that to happen, they need to be ready to sell whatever it, it might be that would hinder their preparedness for that contest. But Jesus then, after speaking of his disciples, speaks of himself and says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgression, transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. 
He's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 53, that great uh, section of scripture about the suffering servant, Isaiah written 700 years ago, prophesying in incredible detail what uh, this moment was about. Talking about the suffering of Jesus Christ, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, verse 3. All we, Isaiah says, verse 6, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what's taking place. Verse 12, he poured out his soul in death, to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. This is what Jesus is quoting from. This is what is in his mind as he comes now to this place. Jesus, of course, is the author of these words. He is the Logos, the Word of God. Uh, It is his spirit that, that inspired Isaiah to write them. Jesus, the author of these words, now comes in human flesh to fulfill his prophecy, to keep his word. Because, you see, what is written about Jesus by Jesus must be fulfilled. He's not plain. I think sometimes when we, um, when we hear Jesus say or, uh, the, the scripture must be fulfilled, that these things happen, it can feel like a sort of a game of Bible bingo, trying to match the events of scripture um, to the, uh, the events of his life to the appropriate prophecies. Jesus kind of um, um, just trying to, to, to match his life to the template. That's not what's going on. This is, this is his book. These are his words. And he is God who, whose word can never be broken. He's faithful in all his works and words. And so just, think, just, just sense the immense faithfulness of, of God whose word never drops to the ground as Jesus in the full awareness of his deity receives the necessity of being numbered with the transgressors. That Jesus is going to be identified with the transgressors. As the Lord lays the iniquities of men on him and makes him who knew no sin to be sin for us. This is the critical hinge of the gospel. It's the glory of the gospel. It's what people who don't understand the gospel, this is what they don't understand. Why is Jesus in the garden? Why is he weeping? Albert Schweitzer, a famous liberal scholar, Uh, He believed that Jesus' death was a tragic miscalculation on Jesus' part. That Jesus had attempted to reverse the wheel of human history by the sheer power of his goodness and his love, but he failed. The wheel won. Human history crushed him. It was a noble attempt, something uh, that it's worthy to admire, even adore, but we have to face the fact that Jesus, with all his best intentions, failed. And the best we can do is is simply try to model his moral teachings. Others see Jesus' death as just a touching sentiment and a a, a sign, a a sort of um, something that the Father does to just say, I want you to know how much I love you, That, that all the cross really is is the expression of divine sentiment. Of, of, of divine affection. Well, that, that's not what Jesus says it is. You see, the, the, this, this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane makes no sense in that scenario. What father does this to his child in order to express love to someone else? 
This makes sense only, and, and, it, and it matters only, if this is what Jesus says it is. If this is Jesus actually being substituted for the sinner, Jesus being numbered with the transgressor. Everything that follows from this moment in his, in his trial, his death, it's all the result, you see, of this numbering, this identification. Because what's going to follow is a, an ordeal of divine judgment as Jesus, the perfectly obedient servant of God, has the sin of men imputed to him as the Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all. That's the wonder of the gospel. That Jesus was willing to be numbered with the transgressors. That Jesus came to us to be numbered with us. To be made sin for us in order to save us. But that's also the cause of his sorrow. In Matthew 26, 38, Jesus says, My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death as they came to the garden. It's not the prospect of Roman nails that weigh on his soul. It's the reality of taking our crime, our perversions, our rebellion, our wickedness, our transgressions, our willful refusal to honor God as God or to give thanks to him, all of our wickedness and all the condemnation and judgment that deserves before a holy God. This is the burden laid on Christ. And with that burden, Jesus kneels and bows and prays. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Luke paints the scene of this, of this holy hour as Jesus leads his disciples now to the place and he tells them to stop and, and urges them to pray. He cares for them. He loves them and he, and he um, he lets them know that, that uh, there is spiritual danger in a sense afoot. They need to be praying. But then he withdraws, withdraws a, a short distance to be alone with his father. Luke mentions it's the distance of a stone's throw. It's not really that far. Most of us would not be able to throw a stone from one end of the room all the way to the other. And so you see, Jesus has removed far enough to be alone with his father, but close enough for the disciples to see and to hear, to watch what's taking place. And they saw something they had never seen before. They saw Jesus, their master, their teacher, undone. They'd never seen Jesus like this. Overwhelmed with grief, nearly desperate in his prayers, with loud cries and tears, Jesus, merely a stone's throw away, pleads with his father. Skilder points out that here we see the, just the tremendous humility and humanity of Christ. He's, he's, not, a, he's not a fake human being. He's not a, a, one of the Greek gods who comes and takes the form of humanity but actually lives by divine power. He's fully human. Skilder says he buys his bread. He pays his taxes. He's real man. And here we find Jesus in his humanity going into the night of divine judgment with weeping. And he's not ashamed for his disciples to see. Skilder says he is not ashamed in his weakness. They may look on and see as he lies there, crushed, exposed to the whole universe. He makes no attempt to smother his sobbing in the folds of his garment in order to prevent the children of earth 
from seeing his brokenness. Instead, he fills the air with his cries, a stone's cast away. And they hear him pray, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. It's so incredibly poignant as Jesus, the son, speaks to his father. There's a, uh, there's a depth here that we are simply not able to uh, enter. The stone's throw is, is close enough to hear, but the height and length and depth of love between the father and the son is too deep, it's too far for us to grasp. But Jesus mentions the cup. Let the cup, this cup, be removed from me. So what's the cup? Well, the cup is the cup of human iniquity and the resulting terrifying wrath of a holy God that it deserves. You see, what what makes the cup so overwhelmingly awful is that in this cup, Jesus gains everything that he abhors and he loses everything that he loves in this cup. Because the cup, you see, brings to Christ the horror of man's guilt. Everything in this cup, every single transgression is abhorrent to Jesus as the perfect son of God. He despises evil. He's not not used to it. He's not comfortable with it. It's abhorrent to him because he loves his father. He loves what is good. He loves what is right. And everything that violates what is good, everything that, that violates the character of his father, Jesus hates. In his holy nature, he delights in righteousness. And, and now he's being asked to drink the guilt and the shame and the wickedness of men. We can easily think it's a light thing for Jesus to be made a substitute for us, for our sin. And you might even think in a moment of sinning or, or immediately after, well, Jesus, Jesus died for this. Yes, he did. Praise God. But you need to see what it cost. This cup brings everything that Christ abhors. But it also, you see, what it does is it, it he loses what he loves. He loses this fellowship that he has between the Father and the Son. If you just read the Psalms and, and you think of how often in the Psalm David talks about, there's nothing on earth I desire more than you. Your love is better than life. You are my portion. You are my inheritance. Well, that's, those are Jesus' songs. All of his life, He'd been tasting the goodness of his father. His father's love was better than life. There was nothing he desired on earth more than his father's will. And now he's losing the fellowship with his father as he bears our sin. As he speaks in this prayer, he senses the door of fellowship closing. And this is the anguish of the garden. This is the source of the tears This is the sorrow that presses drops of sweaty blood from his body. The father is beginning to turn his face away. The time is approaching when they must part. Though they've been one in unbroken bond of fellowship and love from all eternity. And as that moment approaches, Jesus offers this heart-rending prayer. My father, oh my precious father, if you are willing, 
remove this cup from me. Yet, nevertheless, praise God, Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will. Jesus is letting us know that there's nothing in his nature that desires this. This prayer is pure obedience. It's a, it's a, it's a um, parallel and yet profoundly different, you see, than the first Adam. Adam also came to a tree. And there was nothing about that tree that was repulsive. It was good. It looked good. It was pleasing to the eye. It, it, it seemed to able to give wisdom. It, it, uh, there was nothing about that tree that, that Adam's soul would have refused. It, it looked very good. All that Adam had to go by was the expressed will of his father, do not eat. It's all he had. Do not eat of it. But Adam, you see, decided, not thy will, but mine be done. And he ate. And the world has been under the curse of sin ever since. And now comes Jesus, the second Adam. There's nothing about this tree that was not abhorrent to him as he comes to the cross. There's nothing about it that he, uh, uh, that he desires about judgment and condemnation. You see, all that Christ has is the expressed will of his Father, drink this cup. But unlike the first Adam, Jesus embraces that will. Not my will, but thine be done. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And Jesus knows the Father's will. He, it was written in the book of Isaiah. It was the Father's will to crush him. It was the Father's will to put him to grief. It was the Father's will to make his soul an offering for guilt. That was the cup the Father gave his precious son and said to him, drink all of it. But friends, it was a battle. It was a battle to choose that which he abhorred and to lose all that he most cherished. Just think of the cost to his soul to say those words, thy will be done. It brought drops of sweat from his body. The hymn writer says there were 99 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. In the second verse he says, But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark the night the Lord passed through, ere he found his sheep that was lost. Luke mentions the anguish, verse 44, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The agony of Christ in the garden is not meant to cause us to pity him. In chapter 23, verse 28, as Jesus makes his way to the cross, there will be women who are gathered weeping, and Jesus will say to them, weep not for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. Luke hasn't written this to help us feel sorry for Jesus. He's written this so that we could sense the astounding love of the Father that the father would be willing to do this to his precious son. He wants us to see the, the incredible, awful cost of our redemption. 
And he wants us to see the glory of our Redeemer. Here we see Jesus before his God and Father offering up his soul to death. Soon the soldiers are going to come. And they're going to do the work that was determined for them before the foundation of the world. But before Jesus gave himself up to those men, he gives himself up to his Father. This is the ultimate thing. Before he surrenders to their will, he surrenders to the Father's will. And before his blood will be taken from him by Roman nails and spears, his blood will be wrenched from him by his Father's saving purpose. This is Jesus and his Father. And no one else. Everything that follows the garden is sealed and committed here. The cross is the fruit of Gethsemane. Jesus will meet his God again at the cross for the great transaction between the judge and the sin bearer. But that can only take place because of what happens here between the Father and the Son. Father, if it be possible, yet not my will but yours be done. Friends, we need to just acknowledge the cost of our redemption. This is because of you. This is because of me. Skilder writes that God could have treated his son thus in the last moment before men were permitted to beat him, that the farewell of the father and son required the sweating of blood, that my heart was thy fault, thy work because of thy sin. This is what our salvation cost. But it's not only because of us, it's for us. This was the Father's will. That's the resounding note from Gethsemane. This was the Father's will. How could this be the Father's will? Because, you see, God wants to manifest his astounding love and grace and perfect justice in the full, free salvation of sinners through the blood of his own Son. Before Jesus goes to the cross, in John 17, he says, Father, glorify thy name. And God says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. And God glorifies his name in the salvation of people like you and me. This is what our salvation cost, but the price has been paid. And so we are invited then to come, to taste it, to drink from the cup of blessing because Jesus drank the cup of wrath. We're invited to come in this way, to come in faith, believing that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for our sin. God invites us this morning to the table where we come and we remember and we believe the body of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ given for us. I'm going to bow as we normally do in a prayer. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to pray very shortly, and then I'm just going to ask you to take some time in your heart and mind to talk to the Lord. Confessing your sin, receiving the gospel for your soul. Uh, just if you've never come to Christ in saving faith, I just want to invite you to pray this morning that this Jesus would make himself known and real to you. Let's bow this morning in prayer. Oh God in heaven, 
What a sobering, beautiful, heartbreaking scene. As Jesus accepts the cup of wrath for our sin, Lord Jesus, thank you that he did so that we could drink the cup of blessing, a cup full of grace and love and peace. Father, hear your children now as they come to you in prayer. Our Father in heaven, now as we come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to a living Jesus who meets us with words of grace and peace accomplished by his own sacrifice. Jesus, meet us now at your table that we could commune with you in love and faith, be encouraged and built up, commune with you, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite the elders to come forward.